Welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. There is a special corner of the universe where real estate developers must come face to face with residents from the neighborhoods in which they are seeking to build. These encounters are sometimes congenial, but more often than not, they are, well, less than congenial. The person who presides over these happy encounters is Samantha Millman. As president of the Los Angeles City Planning Commission, Millman oversees all major projects citywide. So we wanted to chat with her to learn more about the interesting and at times fraught role that public input plays in the land use planning process. Stay tuned. Season two of City Speak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects is a full-service architectural practice predicated on the notion that architecture is both an artistic and social endeavor that has the potential to enhance the way we experience the world around us. You can explore their projects at batoniarchitects.com. Samantha Millman, welcome to City Speak. Thank you for having me. Just kind of give a general description of what it is you do at the City Planning Commission. And importantly, because I didn't know this actually beforehand, how is the City Planning Commission distinct from the Department of City Planning and what are the kind of divisions of powers? Sure. So City Planning Commissioners are appointed by the mayor. So we are neither elected nor hired per se. Um, And I believe that we're really there to provide an outside perspective, one that isn't necessarily anchored in the rubric of planning one that isn't anchored in being an elected politician, but really the Angelino's layman's perspective on planning and to give that extra set of eyes to both projects and policies that on a large scale are affecting our city. And you said that you weren't elected. So how does the appointment process work? How did you get to where you are? So I started off actually on an area planning commission. So there's the citywide planning commission, which is a nine-person commission. And then there are seven area planning commissions that are divided by geographies within the city. So I served on the central area planning commission, which is Hollywood and downtown, Chinatown, mid-city. So as you can imagine, we were very busy. But we were hearing mostly appeals We were sometimes initial decision makers, but most of the time we were hearing cases on appeal, and our job was to evaluate those appeals within the parameters of existing policy. So I served on that commission for a couple of years and then was appointed up to the Big City Planning Commission. And what an appointment looks like is you get a letter from the mayor's office saying you have been recommended for appointment to a commission. Please submit your resume and pertinent facts about yourself. And you go through a council confirmation process. In the case of people who are making land use decisions, we first went to the planning and land use management committee of the council for approval. And then you you are confirmed by the larger city council. For for somebody who hasn't ever been to a city council meeting or any Mm -hmm. kind of local government meeting, they can be quite colorful, if I'm correct. They can. And I'd love for you to kind of walk us through what's a typical meeting like and what are the goals and what is ultimately accomplished at a city planning commission meeting. Great. So we reside within California and meetings are governed by the Brown Act, which means we have fully open meetings. Any member of the public can come 
any member of the public can speak and they can speak on as many items on the agenda as they would like. So at a typical city planning commission meeting, you'll have land use representatives who are there um, on behalf of applicants who have projects before the city. You have members of the community who are either in support of or against a certain policy or project. And then we have from time to time, some gadflies who just like to show up and exercise their First Amendment right to say whatever they would like for the time they are allotted right. until the timer runs out and the gavel comes down. And they can be quite colorful. But for the most part, we're having and hearing substantive feedback on projects. So you have an applicant who wants to build a high rise downtown. So you'll hear from them and some stakeholders in the community who are in support of building housing downtown. You may hear from some folks who are concerned that there isn't enough affordable housing or that there are gentrification issues. So we really hear a 365 degree commentary on the projects before us. It's not unheard of for projects not to have community input, but most projects have folks who would like to get their two cents on the record and let us know how they feel about a project. And is there a particular threshold that a project has to meet to require that kind of community input? Or is it discretionary by somebody? How does that work? Mostly it would be discretionary cases that would require that sort of feedback. I can't imagine legally that you could have a ministerial or by right project really subject to community input and changes. But anytime you open up that book of discretionary approvals, that's when community input is put on the record and we have hearings. So let's hypothetically say that I um, am just a local stakeholder and I want to voice an opinion on a particular project mm -hmm. that's coming up. Is it mainly that I step up to the podium and I give my two cents? and then the next person goes and it's sort of sequential like that? Or do you have a role in facilitating any kind of dialogue between, say, the applicant and the stakeholders? Or is it merely just to put it all on the record for public use and public consideration? So mostly it's just to get public comment on the record. However, there are issues that can arise during cases where members of the community or a neighborhood council come in and say, we would like to see X. And so at that point, an applicant may choose to say, in order to move this forward and to satisfy the concerns of the community, we are willing to put copper mullions on the windows of our building. Wow. However, that's not something that I feel is appropriate for the commission to ask for. That needs to be done privately in a private agreement between an applicant and a community. And in certain cases, we'll even have folks come in and say, we want to see a condition for the copper mullions on this building. And our stance has been that we are not comfortable putting those conditions of approval into an approval document because they're not based in any land use decision. It's a private agreement between a community and a developer. Understood. And what you, you, you referenced the approval document. So the meeting happens, you hear of all the stakeholders and all of the relevant parties. What then is your role thereafter? What does the commission do when considering a project? So I'll go back a little further. Sure. Even. So 
before the meeting even happens, we receive a huge package of staff reports and supporting documents. So in some cases, public hearings have already taken place. In all cases, there is a staff report with recommendations on policy or projects. And we have read through those documents. There's oftentimes project plans that come with that, environmental documents that come with that, community outreach letters, um, sequences of communications between staff and members of the community. So that all goes into our preparation for a meeting. So once we conduct the meeting, we begin our deliberation and we have conversations about First and foremost, what the findings were within the approvals and whether they're accurate, um, if there are certain conditions that need to be tweaked a little bit in order to help strengthen those findings. And then depending on the approval before us, we'll either make recommendations to council, and that's on more legislative matters, like general plan amendments and zone changes, we make recommendations, or we will make approvals on certain density bonus uh, cases, or we will be adjudicating an appeal of a transit-oriented communities project. So it really differs depending on what the entitlement is before us. One question I have is in particular related to how you manage and deal with communities that are maybe particularly resistant to certain projects. I would just ask generally, how do you balance the goals of a department of city planning like LA's, which is housing production, especially in light of um, such an acute housing shortage in California, with the legitimate wishes of public commenters and citizens. And I guess more pointedly, what would be your response to some arguments that might be made that the public input process and all of the time that has to go into getting public political will and approval enables, or sometimes at worst, kind of stokes general nimbyism that is hindering our housing production? So maybe I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna, but I actually do think that there is a silent majority in this city that understands the need for greater housing production. And so we always want to hear from communities. And if you see a project that comes before us and there hasn't been engagement of a community, our commission's not going to be happy about that. On the other hand, we understand that sometimes the people who are most passionately opposed to projects are the most likely to show up. And so we try to make decisions based on fact and findings rather than putting our finger up and feeling which way the wind is blowing with the community. I think where community input is important because no one knows their neighborhoods the way that members of the community know their, know their neighborhoods is in the community planning process. But for people who feel that sometimes this community input has hindered our housing production, I think that is a fair criticism. The question is, how do you resolve it? And I think that the way the charter is set up actually gives us this great avenue. What is the charter, just for background? The city charter is the Bible of how the city runs. So the way that the Los Angeles City Charter divides power, it the city charter spells out roles and responsibilities and ordinances and processes and procedures for how business gets done in the city. So there are a series of checks and balances. The City Planning Commission has full authority to make decisions that it feels is in the best interest of the city. However, in some cases, we're making recommendations to council and council members 
have ultimate sign-off on what happens in their district. So just having that check in there means that we, as unelected decision-makers, have the ability to weigh in is not outsized in proportion to the importance of the elected officials who are beholden to their constituents. I think this is why you're seeing more action from at the state level to get involved in land use decisions at a local level. Because ultimately, when you have elected officials who are local elected officials who are making land use decisions, and they are being elected by a very small number of people who actually turn out and vote, the people who actually turn out and vote who tend to be of certain demographics have an outsized influence on the way land use is done in the city. You refer to the fact that the commission relies on facts and fact findings. And when I think of criticisms of particular projects, I can't help but sometimes think that they toe a certain line between aesthetic and fanciful, often, you know, architectural critiques Mm -hmm. of particular projects, which for me is hard to reconcile with a notion of fact or finding. And so what are what are some example fact findings that the commission will submit or set forth that guide your consideration of projects? So when we are evaluating a project, we have a staff report in front of us that lays out certain findings that are necessary for the entitlement before us. And usually it is the question that has to be answered and then staff's answer to the question. And so as we're evaluating a project, we're looking at how staff has answered that question and that finding and saying, is this correct? Is this sound? Is there anything else that we need to put on the record to bolster it? Or in very rare cases, do we agree with this finding? We may not and have to make counter findings in order to make that decision. I can only speak to my own process. For me, I tend to be very anchored in fact finding. It's too easy to get into the subjective with planning, and then you make incongruous decisions, decisions that don't comport with each other when you line them up side by side. And I think the best way to have a fair process and to make good decisions is to root your decision-making in facts and findings. You referred earlier to the efforts at the state level to support general housing goals of the state whilst balancing that against the broad authority that local governments are given to determine how their city develops. From your vantage point and from the commission's vantage point, how are your feelings about the Sacramento and the state's attempts to, quite frankly, intervene in the local land use planning process? I think it really varies from each piece of legislation. So there are some pieces of legislation that I think were very helpful. In particular, the ADU legislation that came down from Sacramento, which- What is an ADU? An accessory dwelling unit, a casita. ADU is actually my least favorite, accessory dwelling unit is my least favorite planning terminology because it means nothing. It's a little granny flat, it's a little house. But when you go into a neighborhood and you say, do you have an ADU? No one knows what you're talking about. Sure. I think the- state's accessory dwelling unit legislation that came down a couple of years ago was really effective because it gave cities a time frame with which to come up with their own ordinance. And it gave them a box that their ordinance had to fit into. 
It gave parameters, but it really allowed cities to do what cities should be doing, which is real planning. Mm -hmm. If you failed to come up with an ordinance and pass it within a time frame, you defaulted to state law. And the state law, I thought, was very good and has been uh, very successful for the city of Los Angeles and our ADU production. But that type of legislation tends to be very helpful, where the state sets guidelines and cities can act within those guidelines. Uh, Addressing now a related statewide crisis, which is homelessness, what, if any, has the role of the commission been in addressing homelessness in the city? I think the real desire, not only of the commission, but of the city, is to streamline the process as much as possible. If I'm not seeing homeless shelters and permanent supportive housing projects in front of the commission, I think that's a good thing because it means they're moving through the process faster. And so we've weighed in on legislation and passed ordinances and order to streamline that process, the Permanent Supportive Housing Ordinance. We passed an interim motel conversion ordinance. So those- What is that? What what did that entail? That entails taking underperforming motels. Owners of underperforming motels can convert them into permanent supportive housing and get streamlined through the decision-making process in order to do so. So to me, that's really successful homeless housing. It's already built. You just have to kind of move some walls around and add some kitchen appliances, and voila, you have permanent supportive housing. It's much less expensive than ground-up construction. While we did pass a permanent supportive housing ordinance in the city, it has been in litigation. And so some projects that would have otherwise been subject to the streamlined process with permanent supportive housing ordinance have had to go through a longer process that requires them to come in front of the commission. They've taken advantage of density bonus or transit-oriented community entitlements in order to move those projects forward. And so we do hear from the public on these projects. And I have been impressed with the way that my colleagues handle feedback that at times is offensive and really conflicts with our values as Angelinos, I think as humans. I know that one of my colleagues, David Ambrose himself, experienced homelessness in his teens. And for him, this is very personal. And for all of us, this crisis is very personal. And so we try to, without being rude, really explain to the public why these projects are so very important and why they're important in all areas of the city and why it's important to not concentrate permanent supportive housing in Skid Row or only in Venice, but throughout our city. I want to close on whether you see any opportunities for improving either structurally or procedurally the land use planning process, and particularly as it relates to the commission's role in that process. And I guess what are the challenges and what are the problems from a procedural vantage point that you see And are there solutions to it? Sure. I think anytime you get into discretionary approvals, everything slows down. Once you're over a certain number of units, you have site plan review and your application becomes discretionary. I think there are opportunities to raise the threshold for site plan review so that certain approvals become ministerial and by right in nature as opposed to having to go through a discretionary process. Right now, that threshold is 50 units. 
Maybe that's something we need to look at. For certain types of approvals, the commission has contemplated changing the level for site plan review. And I think that it's something we're interested in doing in the future. The issue is in order to make these changes, you have to do environmental review on top of it. And the CEQA review takes a lot of staff time and a lot of funding. And so that is one way that the city could speed things up is if at a state level, there were some sort of legislation that would say that all policy, all land use policies that come out of cities are exempt from CEQA. So that CEQA is really evaluating the environmental impacts of projects as opposed to policies. And the environmental review gets done because as projects come through the pipeline, they're subject to it. It would really increase our ability to make good policy and make those structural changes that are necessary. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanize Media, with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith, and musicology and verification of originality by Muse Inspection. Stay tuned for our next episode.